So I thought, along with my colleagues, that the task ahead was to take those three things, which are immutable features of our college that we're not likely to change, and then try to figure out how to make them into the right idea at the right time, right place um, in. And so that's what we started doing. We uh, immediately um, began um, creating a distinctiveness for our college on the basis of the very three things that we were told were the recipes for doomsday, and we made something of it. everyone, and welcome to this new episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we hold conversations with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today's guest is Dr. Meredith Wu, president since 2017 of Sweetbriar College in Virginia. A native of Seoul, Korea, President Wu attended high school in Tokyo and came to the U.S. to study at Bowdoin College in Maine. She completed her master's degree in international affairs and Latin American studies and then went on to earn her doctoral degree in political science at Columbia University. An expert on international political economy and East Asian politics, her accomplishments are both impressive and unusually wide-ranging, including authoring and or editing seven books serving as the executive producer of an award-winning documentary film and holding dean positions at the University of Virginia and University of Michigan, uh, among other administrative and faculty posts. We will include a link to her full bio in the show notes so that you can see the full extent of all that she has done. But for now, Meredith, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Well, thank you, Melissa. I'm very honored to have been invited to have a conversation with you. I think that what you've done through the podcast is an incredible contribution to higher education to let us think about uh, all the interesting challenges and uh, promises of higher education going forward. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I am so looking forward to hearing your insights on these pressing issues and challenges. Uh, we like to start by finding out something about our guests. And as I uh, noted, you have had a wonderfully rich and varied professional journey. And so as you think back on your life's journey, your professional journey, I'm curious how the dots connect for you. What influences have most shaped who you are today and your pathway to the college presidency? Well, Melissa, as you noted for the audience, I was born in Korea and I grew up there until I was about 14. I went to high school in Tokyo and then came to this country as a foreign student to go to college at Bowdoin in Maine. And basically I never left university or college campuses since then. The fact that uh, I, I hail from Korea probably is a very good starting point for thinking about education and higher education. Um, Korea, when I was growing up, was a very poor country, but it was a country that revered education. In 1950, 
Korea had a GNP per capita that was lower than Uganda's. And that was because it was a country that was devastated by war, which ended only in 1953. However, in 1960, the same year that recorded such miserable GNP per capita growth or uh, number, it still had more students in college per thousand than in England. People cared profoundly about education as not only an engine of growth or channel for mobility, but this was something that in Korean culture is very embedded, very deeply ingrained, that education shall set you free, not economically and culturally only, but spiritually and intellectually, obviously. So I think that that kind of belief in education was always with me, but I also suppose that I have a kind of temperament uh, that I want to understand how the world works. I want to understand the world around me and to make sense of it. And uh, so from that point on, it's really not terribly surprising that I would have preferred to stay in university campuses. Well, to quote somebody who is no longer quoted around the world, Karl Marx, he once said that philosophers only interpret the world, but the point is to change it. But as a scholar, I was always interested in interpreting the world and changing the world was not something that I felt I could do very much. In part because I come from a different culture um, that I suppose I did not grow, grow up thinking that change in itself of itself was always a desirable thing. That uh, I, didn't, I didn't have the hype of changing the world that was with me as a creed from the beginning. But over time, I learned a couple of things about myself, which was that by temperament, I kind of liked always instinctively figuring out how to do things differently figuring out how things could be in ways that are not at the moment. And that somehow that seemed almost instinctual with me. And that sort of got me in the path that uh, I have been on. The second thing that I discovered about myself was that having the habit of a scholar interpreting the world wasn't a bad way to go to start before you begin thinking about changing the world, that uh, by temperament, with the habit of a scholar, I'm always trying to understand uh, how things work, trying to make decisions on the basis of evidence, evidence, and always evidence. And so scholarly training in that sense prepared me for I suppose the job or the career pathways that I entered into without quite thinking that I was doing it or I would like to do it, but that's how I ended up. You're obviously very curious. Uh, maybe another way of, of, of saying what you're expressing and uh, mm -hmm. it, really, it really fits with what I understand about your achievements, particularly your time at Sweetbriar. So 
Um, for those, for our listeners, and we have we have listeners around the globe, uh, for those who are not familiar with Sweetbriar, could you give us a brief overview, uh, in particular, your mission, what makes you unique? Sure. Sweetbriar is a small liberal arts college. It's a woman's college. The fact that it is a woman's college is very significant. And let me explain it to you in ways that I experience it on a day-to-day basis. Um, the mission of the college is education for women. 120 years ago, as it is now, 120 years ago, it was tougher for women to be educated in higher ed. It's a lot easier. In fact, uh, you know, women are ubiquitous. You got more women than men in college campuses. But we provide, however, still space for learning for women. We are 100% women at undergraduate level. That space that we provide for women for education is a very unique space. It's a space in which women feel comfortable in their skin. They are who they are. They can speak up in their class. They can wear what is comfortable. They can thrive. They can fail. They can make awkward and stupid remarks in a classroom without worrying about misogyny or somebody laughing at them. This is truly a space for education and growing up for women. You know, life is so difficult sometimes, you think, and growing up, becoming mature, to be confident is a long process. It's not a process that ends after four years in college. But if you got a leg up in those four years, learning how to be comfortable in your skin, learning how to live with yourself, learning how to accept yourself through failures, mistakes, and building confidence on that basis, I think you're in pretty good shape. In fact, when I speak with uh, alums of Sweetbriar College, these are the same alumni that came to rescue the college in 2015, that almost to the last person they will say that Sweetbriar taught them how to have confidence. And that's big. That's really big. Sometimes it's difficult as men or as women to acquire confidence, even when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 60. To have, to have had that experience that you can fail, you can pick yourself up again, and you got people who have your back, and then um, growing and transforming on the basis of it, I think is really big. And I think that's what makes Sweetbriar very distinctive as a woman's college. Um, a college of one's own for women, in effect. The other thing that is really unusual about Sweetbriar that makes it very distinctive is its small size. Not small, but really small. We have, for every six students, a faculty member. Our classes often hold, um, you know, five students, 10 students. I have an old friend, Michael Crow, who's president of. Uh, Arizona State University, uh, famously the most innovative university in America, also the biggest university in America. And he told me, Meredith, Sweetbriar being so small 
being able to teach women and work with them in a small classroom setting, he said, that's gold. That's really gold. And he got it right um, that what we can provide is the greatest bang for the buck. It is gold for, for students. Um, and uh, we would like to keep it that way and uh, make sure that through this education, which practically nobody can provide at that scale, that we produce women to be leaders in our society, going forth in their families, in their communities, in their societies, in ways that's small and big to make some difference that's meaningful. So now when you assumed the presidency of Sweetbriar in 2017, the school was still in the news due to an attempt to close the school a few years prior, which you mentioned. Uh, there were reports of long-standing financial difficulty and accreditation issues, uh, something that I would think would give anybody pause in terms of thinking about taking on the, the role of president. So how did you how did you think about that? And you must have had some concerns uh, at the outset. Let me at the outset uh, just say that uh, contrary to the report, it wasn't financial uh, issues that led to the closure nor accreditation issues. Okay. But I know that people think that. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I would say a couple of things. One, Melissa, University business is not a for-profit business, but in my in our professional career in the last few decades, an industry came into being called higher ed. And when the industry or sector happens like higher ed, you got experts, you got observers, you got consultants. And essentially the question about viability has become the currency the conversation in those decades, you know, so they look at the numbers, enrollment, retention, the tuition level, they look at all these hard numbers because now it's an industry. And then you render judgment about whether an institution is viable or not. And then you have the professional Cassandras that tell you every year, you're gonna have 200 colleges fail this year. Next year, you're gonna have 200 fail again. And COVID will bring about the collapse of small liberal arts colleges. You got all of that going. But I do believe to say the obvious that the university or a college is not a business, it's not an enterprise, although we want to run these institutions very well as a good entity that's well managed. But in America, as perhaps in few other colleges, uh, countries, you know, colleges are really anchors of our society. They are cultural, intellectual, economic, and social assets for our nation. And you can understand it when you look at college campuses in this country, they are beautiful campuses taking on the you know, British um, tradition of, uh, of uh, you know, colleges being bucolic, rural, beautiful areas. And if American colleges are cultural, economic, um, intellectual assets for the nation. You can imagine what they mean for the local areas they're located in. Sweetbriar is it 
for this area of Central Virginia. We employ people. We provide educational opportunity, not just for women from around the country, but to local kids that want to learn Suzuki violin, right? They want to do the soccer camp. It is a very important anchor for the community. And we need to think twice. We need to think really carefully what it means when you go around saying something is not viable. What we need to figure out is how to make ourselves viable so that we can thrive in ways that's beneficial for our area and for our nation. It's really not a question of if, but it's a question of how do we do it because it is our responsibility to make sure that these things happen. That said, um, it occurred to me that what happened in 2015, and I wasn't here in 2015, that it really wasn't the case of deficit of financial resources, but what it was was deficit of hope. Mm -hmm. It was always said, and once again, I'm going back to all these Cassandras for decades who talk about viability of our sector, is the decision was made, in my view, that if you look at a college that's liberal arts, that's single sex, that's in rural Virginia, what it indicated in the minds of those analysts, perhaps, and administrators, was that it probably wasn't the right idea at the right time, right place. Liberal arts might no longer be a great idea, Single-sex education might be anachronistic, not the right time, right? And that being in a rural area probably was not the right place at a time when students allegedly just want to be in New York City or Boston or Charlotte. So I thought, along with my colleagues, that the task ahead was to take those three things, which are immutable features of our college that we're not likely to change, and then try to figure out how to make them into the right idea at the right time, right place um, in. And so that's what we started doing. We uh, immediately um, began um, creating a distinctiveness for our college on the basis of the very three things that we were told were the recipes for doomsday, and we made something of it. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing and merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed a program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, 
our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. I'm struck by your language, uh, deficit of hope, mm -hmm. uh, which I think uh, I, I have seen that, unfortunately, time and again, deficit of imagination uh, in, in trying to reframe uh, the possibilities uh, for institutions. So now this is a wonderful segue to my next question, um, because under your leadership, Sweetbriar has made some really amazing, some impressive gains uh, in, in recent years. And you've begun to talk about that a little bit. Um, how would you describe the ways in which the college is different now compared to when you first arrived? Um, wh what would you characterize as the most significant differences, maybe the most impactful change over mm. the seven years? Right. Um, when I arrived, the college was in catastrophic shape because 2015 was a catastrophe. And the way in which Sweetbriar um, was sustained was different from Antioch, which closed and then reopened after doing some serious thinking. And uh, in Sweetbriar's college, we never actually closed uh, because there were a lot of lawsuits to get the key back. And so it kind of never closed, but we had the worst of both worlds because with the decision to close, we had dispersed all the students. And so it was difficult to jumpstart it in the fall. Um, and, uh, you know, once the decision is made to close and it is at, it goes out as the front page news of New York Times, it becomes very difficult to let people know that they didn't actually take place. And uh, so it was very difficult. And uh, when I arrived, we had less than 200 students. Um, and, uh, and then there were, there, there were a lot of disruptions. The entire administration at the top level was fired. We had a new board that was quickly put together. So you can imagine it was a pretty chaotic situation. And, um, you know, it was pretty clear by the time I arrived that we couldn't make a go of it in a piecemeal fashion. You know, um, a lot of colleges are in similar shape, not quite as bad, but in difficult situation uh, budget wise. Um, but, um, you know, and they, you know, they try to do a number of different things. They could try to eliminate some majors that are not popular. They could try to do a tuition reset. They could try to reduce, you know, faculty size. They could try this and that. And uh, in our situation, we couldn't, we didn't have the time to do these things sequentially or bit by bit or one-off. So we created a plan to do a turnaround quickly by number one, completely resetting our academics to create distinctiveness through our liberal arts education. We did tuition reset. We completely revamped our budget, which 
actually uh, ended up reducing the number of majors by more than 50%, which is very painful. But throughout this process that was very painful, which was necessary, but which was doable because of a very difficult catastrophic experience that we went through. The critical part in making this all work was that the donor base and the alumni stayed with us. They understood this had to be done and that nothing less than this comprehensive scope was going to cut it. And that three, there was a real danger to this because we have no idea what the backlash from any of this is gonna be. But uh, to have the supporters with us and constituencies, even as our constituencies going through really rough times, they stayed with us and for, for which I'm always grateful. But that's kind of where we are. We, I can say, have created the fundamentals administratively, structurally, that we believe is viable, that we have created distinctiveness, which we can always do better, marketing, advertising, but we feel that we do have the distinctive mission that I think is shared by our constituencies. And so I would say that uh, after many hard years, we are in, in a place where we've, we're grateful that we are in. And you've gained enrollment back, I understand. Uh, yes, so we are growing. This has been a, a, a slow process, but we, from less than 200, we're seeing probably in the fall, it'll be about 500 plus. Sweetbriar has always been a small college. We don't expect to grow over 600. Um, and so, you know, we're getting there. You know, one of the obvious things about your leadership journey is the ability to innovate and to lead innovation. Uh, could you speak to the challenges, the surprises, and the lessons, maybe, uh, that you've learned about innovation and implementing change, uh, both from your Sweetbriar presidency, but I know that wasn't the first time you've led innovation. So I'd love to hear more uh, about that. Over time, I've come to think, Melissa, that innovation is doable, and it's durable and workable only if you understand your past, only if you understand your culture, only if you understand what worked in the past and what didn't. You know, there are a lot of innovative ideas out there. You know, I mean, there are a dime a dozen ideas. When I first came, people are saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And that some schools did that, other schools did other things. You should go online, you should do this and all that. And the problem with all these wonderful ideas is how do you know what's gonna work, you know? And so uh, in the end, um, we uh, started on innovation, which I interpret as creating what is distinctive about us, have that as the mission and stick to it and do it in ways that's relevant and that's in demand for the 21st century. And so for us, innovation is a conservative notion. And um, so we proceeded to move on that basis. We said, we're not gonna jettison the fact that we're liberal arts. We're not gonna jettison the fact that we're small. We're not gonna jettison the fact that we're women's college. We're not gonna jettison, we're not going anywhere except live here in Amherst, Virginia. 
And uh, then we try to kind of figure out how do you jazz these things up so that, um, you know, our curriculum is singularly focused on using the very best of liberal arts to create women leaders, 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 define it, create a curriculum for it, train them and stay focused on it. And, uh, you know, it's really looking at our campus and remaining truthful to the way that in Anglo-American tradition, we looked at, uh, you know, college campuses as a place, not only of learning, but of contemplation, a beautiful space, which in the case of Sweetbriar College is also National Register Historic District. So we do have this burden of preservation, which is a joyful burden, but do it. Make sure that we keep our campus as beautiful and as dignified as possible. So in the last five years, Melissa, we put a lot of investment in our jaw-dropping beautiful campus with 3,000 acres. We put in, because uh, uh, Virginia is the fourth most important wine producing state in the union, uh, you know, women can see agriculture, the new kind of smart agriculture as a, as a possible career path. You know, agriculture today is not your grandfather's agriculture. We put in 20 acres of vineyard. We put in 20 acres of wildflower meadow. We put in 27,000 square foot of a massive, massive greenhouse where we produce the food we consume put into the temple that's our body and to understand something about the food economy. We have renovated our athletic area thoroughly so that women can practice um, endurance sports, which will put them in very good position when they are in a position to go out in the world as leaders. And so innovation for us was really taking stock of who we are, what we are, and then go with it, make ourselves relevant for the future. Now, one of the things I often hear from leaders who are in the midst of or trying to do something new has to do with the challenge of managing the culture and managing cultural change, uh, not to mention how to manage highly engaged constituencies. And that was certainly the case at Sweetbriar, uh, yeah. where the, alum the alumni, a very strong body of alumni, organized uh, to, I think in the newspaper, they called it take back the keys mm -hmm. uh, in their effort to fight the 2015 closure attempt. So what have you learned about how to implement change amid a culture as strong as is the case at Sweetbriar? I have a, a friend, sociologist, James Hunter, who uh, wrote this book called Culture Wars and writes all these books about culture. And he defines culture as the sum of all lived experiences. And when culture is the sum total of your lived experience, the notion that you change the culture suddenly becomes ominous, becomes very difficult. And it is very difficult. You know, you got management gurus that say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
And that too is true because culture is something that's so very difficult to change. So with my experience at Sweetbriar, I would say setting out to change the culture is probably not the right thing to do from the get-go, right? Because uh, you know it takes a long time for you to understand what culture is in an institution that you're leading. And if you don't understand the culture that you're leading, there isn't a prior's chance that you're gonna be successful. And so um, understanding the culture, listening to it, living it, and respecting it above all, and try to figure out how to take the, that culture, how to amplify the best of that culture, and try your best to minimize perhaps the worst of that culture or the inefficient or not so great of the culture is probably what's important in order to drive change. What parts of the change process have you found the most challenging and, and why? Probably the hardest was the fact that I was coming into a broken situation that was broken after a catastrophe. So I didn't have consistent manpower with people with whom I could work with. I had not so much colleagues, but comrades maybe that I could work with. Um, but by and large, uh, not having institutional support other than the board being supportive, but the board itself was a board that was put together overnight, right? And so um, building the institution from, in some ways, from scratch after it went through a terrible experience. I think that was that was really hard. And there's not a playbook, is there, that you can That's pull off really the shelf? Different. There is no playbook. There are so many books on how to be effective higher education president, so many books on what to do, so many how-to books, but uh, there are no playbooks on how to turn around a college that dispersed all the students and shut down uh, or said it was gonna shut down. And because there's no playbook on how to rebuild on that basis, there's obviously no playbook or no advice on what kind of blowback or adverse consequences that, that you can expect. But um, well, um, you uh, learn by doing. Yeah, in, indeed. And uh, you've done a marvelous, a marvelous job seven years, seven years into it. Given well, your experience, yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> given your experience in strengthening a small college that was on the brink of closure, uh, what what have you learned about what it takes for a small college to survive and thrive in this current environment? Well, with my experience, really, uh, all I can say is really think hard about your mission. Cue um, close to your mission. And, you know, with your mission, then, uh, you know, try to figure out how to make institutional changes that are relevant around it. If your mission is no good, then you got a real problem. Then you got to redo your mission because it is your mission that will guide you through, right? And uh, our mission has always been about education of women 
to be ethical leaders who will go forth with their great courage to make contribution to the world. And if we're serious about that mission, well, you know, we're going to do it, right? And so I would say that, um, you know, if you're confident about your mission and you stay close to it, that that probably is the best way. That will give you courage. That'll give you justification. That will give you your cover for making the changes that are necessary. So from the perspective of the leader, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a president or a provost, whoever's on the senior leadership team, what's, what's important? Uh, you, you talked about courage. But I'm wondering, is there a certain kind of leader uh, that is most needed or perhaps most appropriate for leadership in this day and age, uh, which is different than it was even 10 years ago? I think the challenges are so different. Yes, but I think leadership is the same, though. You know, I'm thinking since I like to quote people. So I remember reading as a political scientist, this great sociologist, Max Favor, who delivered a great lecture called Politics as Vocation. And he did that in Munich uh, about hundred years ago or more, when it is pretty clear that Germany was losing World War I and that Germany had to change and Germany had to deal with something that they never had before. Germany had to have political leadership because political leadership had failed. So that got him thinking about what is leadership? And I think that was a daunting question for him because what do Germans know about leadership or Germans at that time know about leadership and, uh, and especially democratic leadership, right? And this is on the brink of Germany going into the Weimar Republic, right? Which famously failed. So obviously they were really struggling with the notion of democratic leadership. And so he said that there are three things needed for leadership. And that's the thesis of polit politics as vocation. One, you need principle, which can give you passion the cause that drives you to lead. The second thing, I mean, that, that part is understandable, right? You need a cause, you need commitment. And then the second part he said was um, accountability, which is very important. And the third thing he said was sense of proportion. And I think that's very difficult. It's impossible to put your finger on it. And uh, impossible to describe, but you know, when you had been in positions of leadership, that the sense of proportion to know what is important, what is not, what you can let go, what you can't, what is indispensable, what isn't, what is big, what is small, I think is very, very important, even if it is difficult to describe. So I would say passion, accountability, and sense of proportion, all of which are all the things that good liberal arts education should give you. So what we say our students should learn from our liberal arts education, we should practice ourselves. 
Now you have recently announced your decision to step down at the end of the next academic year, I believe. So I'm just curious, why, why now? How did you know this was the right moment? Uh, and what's, what's next for you, if, if you even know yet? Oh, well, I know the second part. I'm just going to focus on uh, finishing strong and making sure that the college is in as good a shape uh, for the next president whenever she is ready to <clears throat> uh, uh, come in. And so uh, I'm just focused on that. As for uh, how did I know this is the right time? Well, it felt right. I asked myself, why did you come and what was what you wanted to accomplish. And I was surprised one day I could answer in the positive that I have completed substantially what I came here to do, to set the college on the right course, to create the fundamentals upon which it can thrive. It might take a little bit of time, maybe a year longer, a year shorter, you know, whatever, to get to where you need to get to. But I felt that I did what... Uh, using skills that I thought I could be useful to the college for accomplished what I wanted to do. And so that felt like the right time to go. I am sure whatever you go on to do next uh, will be impactful as has been your time at, at Sweetbriar. Now we've come to the end of our time, Meredith, and we have a signature question we ask of every guest. And so the question uh, is this, what innovation, what new idea uh, in higher ed are you particularly excited about or interested in right now and why? The new idea in higher ed is an idea that is not completely known to us. And that is the kind of education that takes great advantage of artificial intelligence. You know, in the old days, the way I thought about higher ed in a kind of nostalgic ways was that education at this level is about taking data, turning it into information, and taking information, turning it into knowledge, and then taking knowledge and turning it into wisdom. Obviously, higher ed is not a continuous spectrum of the kind of knowledge process as I've described it, but I think there's some truth to that, some. But then, you know, Google happened. Google takes the data, turns that into information. And then you got ChatGPT that happened that turns information, the vast universe of information and turns it into knowledge through a process of correlation that we don't understand. Not even engineers at Google understand how with lightning speed, uh, information uh, stitch it together into those pristine, wonderful knowledge that ChatGPT delivers to you with such authority and humility and sweetness. And uh, so I think the great challenge going forward is for us to understand what we don't understand yet. Um, the huge gap between knowledge and understanding, and then trying to figure out how to create the kind of education and uh, learning process that uh, allows us to be masters 
of artificial intelligence and other technology issues, while completely admitting that we will never know or think as fast as artificial intelligence. But really, I think it cuts to the core of liberal arts education. How do you educate our uh, students, this future generation, to have judgment, to arrive at discernment, to arrive at some sense of proportion, to arrive at kind of common sense, to arrive at ways of managing their lives so that they can have lives well lived, you know, while they live in the world where algorithm is their boss. Right. And I think this is an incredible challenge. It's it's a challenge like never before posed to higher education. And I think that we should all rise to the occasion with great alacrity. Absolutely. And great, great opportunity, I think, as as well, perhaps. So, Meredith, it has been such a delight to have this conversation. I wish you and Sweetbriar all the best. Uh, in your final time and during the upcoming transition, both for the college and for you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. You're a great interlocutor. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Thank you.